Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. We're going to be talking about storytelling in the long form, and we've got three fabulous people here to help us. And how I thought we'd get started, really, was to get each of them to introduce themselves, the job they're now doing, perhaps a bit about their background and how that really intersects and informs the discussion about narrative storytelling. And uh, Trent Dalton at the end, why don't we start with you, Trent? Why don't you give us the word about who you are and... All of that. No problem, Paul. Hi, my name is Trent Dalton. I write for the Weekend Australian magazine. Used to write for Kiwi Canned, in which Kylie Lang is now editor. Um, and um, yeah, thank you all very much for coming along. I'm a big fan of long form storytelling, and uh, I love the, the whole concept of this session, you know, really talking about narrative because I believe it's actually one of the most important parts of, um, of long form journalism. Great. Uh, I'm Noah Rosenberg, um, founder, uh, CEO, editor-in-chief of Narratively, which if you haven't heard of, we're based out of uh, Brooklyn, New York, but we tell stories from all over the world. Um, Narrative.ly is the website, and um, we focus on ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Kylie Lang, editor of Q Weekend. I also write a column in the Sunday Mail. Uh, so basically you're probably familiar with the magazine, but front and back sort of lifestyle, interesting kind of things about what's happening around town. But what really um, floats my boat, I guess, is the narrative that we do tell in our feature stories. So we've got a core team of writers and we do take some freelance. Um, but really, narrative is what it's all about. Telling stories is really the core of, of journalism, in my opinion. OK, Trent, you've been doing the magazine writing for quite some time now. You're one of yep. the better-known feature writers in the country, actually. Uh, so how do you know when you have a story, I mean, most journalists in your position have three or four things on the go at one time. Some stories don't come to anything. Yeah. Some become huge. How do you know when you've got a story? And uh, how do you know what length that story is and, and the devices via which you tell that story? Yeah, it's a great question, Paul. It's the first thing I really think of before I'm even pitching my editor stories. I really am looking for, and I do do what you just said, I have about probably six stories on the go, maybe four to six stories on the go at any one time because you don't want to be left in that kind of stranded uh, limbo um, vacuum of nothing to write about at any one time and stories and, and, and subjects will fall over and interviews will fall over so you have always want to be sort of working on a whole bunch of different things but the first thing I really look for is the power of the idea and then, um, and then so that gets me in and then... Where does it go? Where, do, where does the story go? So, so before I even pitch that story to my editor, I really need to know there's some kind of narrative journey. So um, I'm a really big believer in um, the, the ability for traditional storytelling, um, almost mythological storytelling structures to be incorporated in, in actual journalism. I think that's a really interesting sort of undiscovered kind of area where, you know, even um, universities, journalism subjects would probably incorporate a bit more. The whole, you know, Shakespearean Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, um, Joseph Conrad mythologies about, you know, heroes' journeys and so forth, I really believe in, and, like, things that Robert McKee, people like that, have, have written about, you know, most used on sort of novels and films but that really applies to long-form storytelling. So I'm always looking for mm. where the story goes, the peaks and troughs. I'm looking for heroes and villains. So if it's a story about Mount, Mount Everest, Everest is probably the villain. The hero is the climber. 
you know, mm. Luke Skywalker's the hero, Darth Vader, you know, it, who's the Darth Vader of the story? And, uh, mm. and all, that, all that sort of yeah. thing. I'm always looking for those sort of things before I even take it to my editor. But, but avoiding the sort of cliche of the white hats and the black hats along the way. So you've, <laughs> exactly, got, you've got the exactly. hero and the villain, but they can't be too stereotyped, right? <laughs> yeah, They've got to be real right. living, breathing people. And then remembering the same journalistic principles of, yeah. of mm. balance and, um, you know, and, and fair hearings to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a really interesting point that uh, Trent just made. Is, is one thing I think we have going for us as journalists, and, and I'm assuming those who are interested in longer form storytelling in the crowd today, is we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel here. You know, long form narrative storytelling has been produced for millennia since you know, the Bible or, or, or earlier, and I think there's a lot we can learn from not only the obvious people like the Tom Wolfs and the Norman Mailers and the Trents and so forth who are doing great work, but I think also from you know, what, what Hollywood is doing and the way that you know, we, uh, you know, traditionally stories have been told across different formats um, from generations ago. And I think, I think it's really fascinating what you said about kind of like the um, mythological structures and, and ways that we can always inject some new life and new vitality into our stories. Uh, we're not really starting from scratch. You know, the, the tools are new. Um, the ways we reach audiences are new. But, um, you know, storytelling has been, has been done forever. And I think that's why it's so exciting right now. So... Where do you stand, Noah, on the idea of the journalist putting themselves at the, the centre of the story versus the journalist more traditionally standing back mm -hmm. and writing about the story? Well, what, one of my biggest pet peeves, actually, as an editor is when we get a pitch in from someone or a draft, even worse, and the first letter in the whole story is I. Mm -hmm. uh, I roll my eyes, I get really upset. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, that being said, there is a time and a place for, um, you know, the, the memoir, the, the, the personal narrative if and when it feels natural. You know, if the, if the author or the writer is experiencing something that really lends a new perspective and a vital perspective, or if it's like it would be unnatural and awkward if the writer didn't acknowledge that he or she was a human being and was a part of this story. But, um, but unless that reason is really there, and unless we all agree that the reason is there as an editorial staff, we, I've gone through pieces at the 11th hour and cut out all the eyes in it, and it becomes <laughs> yeah. a much stronger piece. Mm, yeah, you're nodding furiously, Kylie. Do yes, you, absolutely. You get this a bit with some of the articles that are yes, submitted to you? Yes, a lot of people think that people really want to know what their opinion is, but most people just want to know what the story is. Mm. And I, I really think it's interesting because, you know, we're in a digital age now where, where five years ago my editors at the Korean Mail were saying, oh, we've all got to go on tablets. People just want little bite-sized bits of information. They don't want big reads. And this, this is the end. This is the death knell for long-form journalism. But we've been chatting before this session, and, and actually what's happening is very much a strong ground root support for those longer-form uh, pieces, whether it's in, the, in print or online, TV shows, podcasts. People do want that, um, that extra information and that, that narrative. They want to be taken on a journey with you. And there's a real skill to doing that. And especially as a freelancer, um, you know, you have to look at the, the magazine's house style. What, what, why are you pitching this story? Who will it reach? It can't just be a story that you want to tell because it interests you. That's lovely, go and put it on your blog. But if you want to pitch something that's going to have a broad appeal, you've got to be able to Frame, frame that piece from that first idea that Trent's talking about, then the editor will say, well, how are you going to flesh that out? What, what do you, how, do you, how will you go about this? And that's really something that a lot of freelancers don't um, think about. They just pitch the idea. So you might agree to the idea, but when you see the, see the piece come in, it just doesn't stack up. Yeah, it's a very good point. You've got to know your audience, who you're writing for, and... Uh 
we find that at the ABC as well, that there are different programs that pitch to slightly different audiences. They all have a brief about what that program is there to achieve. And, um, you know, I'm forever and have been in the past pitched ideas from freelancers that just would tend to indicate that the person pitching it hasn't actually heard the program that they're mm. pitching the story that's to. That's really irritating and, and, and you feel a bit insulted and, and, you know, why don't you take the time to mm. actually understand who we are and what we do? And it's those people that do take that time that you're much more open to taking commissions from, much more than the people who... You just, some people just get blacklisted because you think, oh, not this person again. <laughs> so what, what, when we talk about stories, are we actually, in essence, talking about people? Are they at the, are they at the forefront of the story when we're talking about a narrative? Trent, do you think when you're working on a story, is it all about the people first? Or mm. if there's an issue, is it about the issue? And how do you, how do you balance mm. the two? Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I think absolutely people will be your driving thing because all the emotion will come from that. You can have a story, um, you know, I don't, Mao's Last Dancer or, you know, um, you know it's, it's, about the, it's about that amazing journey but it's also about the guy, you know, and, and it's like, oh, you know, that's just funny. Pulp fiction, you know, every story becomes about character somehow. You know, it's, it's you know, back to the future. It's a bit much as about time travel as it is about... The McFly, McFly family, you know, and it, it, it's it's always about finding that human aspect. And um, I think freelance, I think long form writing, is, this is where it's so beautiful. So, so I've, I'm always looking at, um, you know, let's say a show, you know, let's say documentaries, right? And I'm always looking at them, going, damn, they, you know, they've got that just extra edge because they can do soundtracks and they can do, um, you know, they can get sort of amazing visuals but then and then I remember hang on we've we've also got this extraordinary tool called words the written word and uh, that's our great tool and, I, and that's probably more powerful than anything mm. your your ability to describe emotion or to describe a person's life that a talking head on a documentary will never get across mm. so Gone Girl was a, a great film but the book was much better mm -hmm. because you've got Gillian Flynn's brilliant words of describing human nature and, mm. um, and that's our, our great gift but definitely starts with you know people but if you can find a great story with great characters people real life people then you've got it made I think that's a beautiful little yeah. mix there I mean we're talking mostly about print right now but in uh, my medium of radio it's actually the people that you're speaking to who in essence tell the story and uh, obviously a lot depends on how proficient they are, how good they are at telling a story. But a really good example, recently I was doing something on copyright in the digital age. How do we protect intellectual property in an age when it's so easy to steal stuff, basically? And it's a bit dry topic. It's important, but it's a bit dry. And I needed a way to get into the story that made people sort of, I don't know, with a story really, a personal story. So we've got Lindy Morrison from the Go-Betweens, yeah. former drummer with the band, who told this story after she got booted out of the band after their three pretty successful albums and she got booted out of the band and all of a sudden she wanted to know, where the hell did my money go? So she flew to London and she tells the story about going into Beggar's Banquet, the recording uh, office of a company and talking to the guy who ran it and goes into Rough Trade Records with her A4 little bit of contract with a scribbled signature That's on it. Brilliant. And this is the story she's mm -hmm. telling me. And it's a brilliant... And the, the purpose of the story is 
is for her to tell us that she's been in a pretty bloody successful rock band but has no idea of what her copyright entitlements are, what her royalty entitlements are. But by her telling that story and capturing the audience, the audience could hear the story and then all the rest of the stuff that was a little bit drier became much more easily oh. sort of accessible. So it's, it's, you know, for me, working on a program now that's a bit that's pretty serious and fairly demanding of the audience. It's those personal stories that really make it more, more digestible. I can give you a quick example of, of that in, in our magazine. Lisa Scott um, won the Clarion Award last year and was named Journalist of the Year for this piece. And the lady's name was Joanna Hill. And Lisa had wanted to do the story about when can you, if you know you're dying, how can you choose your, you should be able to choose your exit. You should be able to say, I don't want to do any more medication uh, or treatment, I've got cancer, I know I'm going to die, let me die my way. So she started off the piece with Joanna Hill, who has since passed away, a 35-year-old woman, and she told the story through Joanna's life and then went into the issue. And it was just a, a, a beautiful, amazing piece. And it brought Lisa to tears when she was telling me about it as she was doing it. Um, it was it, those pieces, and Trent, you would have done them, and, and Noah, where you, you just get so involved in, in your piece that it's, it, it moves you, but it also moves your audience mm. to... Did you, did you know then with Lisa that even by looking across the desk at her emotion that it was going to be a cracker? Or yep. like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I, think, I think those are the best stories to work on. I mean, if we can, I'd love to talk for a couple of minutes about where, where ideas come from. Sure, great. And I wonder, you know, you, Kylie, as, a, as an editor, um, do you find that the best pieces, the ones that are emotional and, and do very well, are they ideas that... You know, a passionate journalist like Trent comes to you with, or the ideas that are used to come to me. I wish he'd come to me more. (laughs) Doesn't do that anymore. Um, But yes, I think it's it's. I always say, who's who's the person in this story? Who is the person? Because you can talk about an issue, and as you're saying, Paul, you know, it can be so dry. But actually, there are issues that even the dry ones we need to bring them out because they're, they're they're issues that need to be discussed and debated in the public arena. But if you can start off with that human touch and that mm-hmm. human element always and they're the stories we get the most um, uh, feedback on we our ordinary person column which has been going for 10 years since the magazine wow. started that is consistently when we do reader surveys it's a, not a long-form journalism it's a, a small piece say mm-hmm. 450 words consistently the lady who makes the coleslaw at the brecky creek hotel 62 she's mm-hmm. been doing it all her life those people want to know about those people the ordinary people that you're now making a very mm-hmm. successful Business app. That's that's I want. That's really fascinating to me. That you know, one of the most popular columns you guys do is this 450 word column. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit about that? You know how, because you know, one thing I I was saying earlier, I get actually kind of jealous about is you know, narratively again, it's sort of similarly focused on these ordinary people with these big, larger than life stories. Um, and we do it in a mix of formats, you know, writing, video, et cetera. Some of our pieces are rather long. And then I look at Humans of New York, which you might be aware mm-hmm. of, which is doing these, like, 60-word stories that are getting thousands upon thousands more likes and, and attention than our stories are. And I'm kind of, like, kicking myself, saying, man, why didn't I think of this first? So um, what is it, though, about a 450-word story? Um, and why did you settle on that length? Was there a reason why that was the right way to do it? Do you ever ha- come across one of those columns that you say, oh, I wish this was done 10 times? longer than this? 
Sometimes, if, yes, if the person, if it's a story that I think will take more words, we'll turn it into a feature mm -hmm. and we'll, get, we'll take it out of ordinary person and, because the, the person has so much more to say. But it's actually amazing what you can fit into 450 words about your life. Um, one of the ones that was really fantastic for us was a lady we did um, earlier this year, Doreen Fraser. Remember, she's 90 and she paints these little Fabergé eggs and I'm thinking, oh goodness, this is going to, you know, the photo's going to be, I don't know. Anyway, I had reservations about it. When the story came in, you know, she survived several husbands, most, I think all but one of her children have died in tragic circumstances, and she has the most positive attitude. And mm. that's, I think, what people take away from a lot of these stories is, here's this ordinary person, and actually they've got a, a much worse life than I've had. You know, you think, oh, I've got it bad, then you read this and you go, okay, I'm doing pretty well. What about that guy you so guys positive. had on, on the weekend? Um, he, was a, he was a dance instructor? Or, yeah. yeah, he was a, this burly bloke. I don't know if you guys saw it. He's a burly bloke, like mid-40s, late, mid-early 50s, big, burly Aussie bloke, and he's a dance instructor, and then, you know, you get into 200 words, and then yeah. you start to realise, oh, hang on, he was a digger. Oh, hang on, mm. he had PTSD. You know, mm. that's by 300 words. Mm. By 450, he's resolved his life. It's come full circle. Yeah. And it's the mm. most beautiful little ordinary wow. people yeah. story yeah. told in all, all his own words. Huh. Yeah. This, this issue of, of story length is interesting. We were talking about it before we came in today. And, uh, Noah, you were saying that for narratively, when you commission a story, you don't pay per word. This may actually shock some of the people in the audience who make their money by selling their copy per word. But actually, it's a good point, because what we were saying was, what is the incentive of cutting 150 words out of an article to make it better if you're going to financially penalise yourself? Why not set a fixed rate for that story, uh, regardless of, of the length? Tell us how, how that works for you, Noah. Yeah, so I mean, I was saying earlier, uh, you know, we're we're proud of the fact that we do pay for stories. I'm I'm embarrassed of, of what we're able to pay as a as a, a digital startup. We're of course working very hard to improve those rates, but um, yeah, that was a conscious decision early on. That you know, I knew firsthand from my own experience, you know, as a, as a journalist for many years, that you know, I might spend weeks and weeks on an 800 word feature and then pick up the phone and make a few calls and write a, a piece from my couch, you know, sitting in my underwear, uh, and, and I do that in, in two hours and write 2,000 words. So, you know, clearly it doesn't quite always add up. I mean, obviously you can probably say that a longer piece tends to have had more, more reporting and more hours put into it, but, um, but you know, we're, we're, we're very careful about, you know, looking at the piece as a whole and, you know, obviously was there any travel involved or how many interviews were involved? Did the, did the story require, you know, in-person in reporting? And hopefully Hopefully it did, because obviously that makes a more compelling and powerful piece. Um, but one thing that, that we think a lot about, too, is, you know, beyond just length and everything, um, you know, I mean, a, you know, who are the characters, right? A few questions we ask when story days come in are, number one is, has the story been told before? I mean, obviously mm -hmm. in a dream world, yeah. we want an untold, you know, unique angle. That's always not the case, but more often than not, stories come to us because you know, maybe it's been, there's been a couple hundred word blog post somewhere about it or, or what have you, and we can now do that story justice, you know, really do that story in a, in a big blown out way, uh, in which case, you know, who are the characters? You know, how do you convey that story and how do you, how, do you, how do you do it in a surprising way? And one thing we sometimes wrestle with is, you know, obviously in this day and age, headlines, of course, are very important because that's, people are seeing those headlines on social media or on, you know, other websites looking out to you. So you want that story to be clickable. You want to a sense of character and so forth in the, in the headline, but then how do you not give away too much in the headline so that the story is still conveying some kind of surprise? And that's something that we, we sometimes wrestle with a little bit. 
Can I just say to anybody in the audience, uh, anyone want to put up their hand at any stage during this discussion, please do. Fire questions away. If you hear anything that resonates with you, just jump in. We will take some questions at the end, but really we want to take questions all of the way through because the purpose of the session is really to give you some ideas about how to approach your own storytelling. You know, sometimes there's a sense when you know you've got a story really early on. I, uh, when I was covering the Patel story early on, the Dr Death story, I flew up to Bundaberg for the very first meeting of all of the patients. Uh, it was the preliminary meeting before the Royal Commission got underway and I got a tip off from the guy assisting Tony Morris QC who said there was a meeting be there with your tape recorder that night wow. and uh, the meeting took place and then afterwards there was a milling around of all of these people physically damaged looking people quite confronting uh, and so I had I figured uh, at the most about an hour an hour and a half to get a microphone in front of as many of these people as I could and mm. get them to tell me the story mm. of what happened and this was had a six-week deadline to produce the documentary this was in the first week and after that night, I distinctly remember the feeling of walking back to my hotel room with all of this material, <laughs> thinking, I've just got, on day one, the most amazing story. Mm. And the fear that gripped me at that point is, I'd better not fuck it up. <laughs> and then it was like, how do I tell the story? So I've got yeah. all this raw material of people telling the story of what this doctor did to them through the malpractice. But as we all know, without retelling that story, that story was a big story about the structural problems in Queensland health. It was a story about doctors, foreign-trained doctors. It was a story about um, maltreatment. And um, so I suppose the point I'm making is, how do you, you we've all been in that position, how do, how do you know how to start a story and how to structure the journey of that story? Can I tell, a, like, this is, you know, one of my most recent situations of that, and it, and it still remains with me because it messed me up. Like, this job can totally mess me up sometimes. <laughs> like, I don't sleep sometimes if I feel I've done a bad turn against someone or, you know, it's just a moral kind of conflicting job, you know, and as you guys will probably know and, and see. But um, I had this great opportunity, I don't want to seem like a name dropper here, but to go over and uh, to Cambridge and speak to Clive James, the great Australian poet, writer, genius you know, broadcaster, yeah. and he's dying, and uh, and sort of really spend about five hours with Clive James and, and get some of his last sort of thoughts on life and, um, you know, as he nears his end. And Clive James gave me, basically, kind of sent me back to Australia with, with um, directions on, on, on what to do with his ashes once he, um, once he, once he dies, right? And, uh, and I was so kind of moved by his generosity through yeah. that, and then... Um, by the time I got back to Australia to write the story, I, one, I was really messed up sort of in my head by the jet lag. Mm. And then, then I, the weight of that sort of story and, and knowing that he would read it too, this guy yeah. that I really admired and my mum gave me his unreliable memoirs when I was like 13 to read, you know, and it kind of got me into long-form feature writing. So I started having these weird dreams, right, where, where because I've been walking <laughs> around Cambridge University... And you know, um, you know that Benedict Cumberbatch, you know that, that great actor? <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch would come to me dressed as like a Cambridge scholar in my dreams, right? And he was telling me how to write this Clive James story. This is how much I was thinking of it. This is how much this story was weighing on me. So he's going, Trent, well, you must start it here with that fabulous anecdote he said about... And then, and then he also had this big like ruler that he'd like snap, and, and it was just messing me up. So, yeah, that, but you, you know you've got gold. 
you yeah. know you've got something. And but the mass that that great pressure mm. of of and the disappointment you would feel if you didn't mm. tell that story right. But because mm. that, that's the flip side, isn't it? I mean, we've talked a bit about whether something is a story in the first place, but then there's the story that you know is a story. <laughs> and the only challenge really is once you know you've got the story, how to tell it. How to tell it best. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on that, Noah, about how, how to get the best, the most out, yeah. of, out of your story? Well, we think, you know, we, we publish our, our, our model at Narratively is a different theme each week and for the most part, one story a day. And the idea behind that is really giving each story and storyteller the space and time he or she needs to have an impact. Um, and, and we, we try to tell stories in, in you know, quote unquote, the most appropriate format. So it's a mix of writing and photo and video, et cetera. And you know, I think the reality is that story ideas will come in and it might be for a long form narrative, but you know, you know when you're an editor, and, and I'm sure you guys know too as, as storytellers, when that story really deserves to, be, to come to life via a little video clip or a, a photo or an illustration. And so, you know, we call them, you know, oftentimes we do a standalone, you know, short video, but more often than not, we'll, we'll incorporate what we call multimedia accents, you know, mm. within that story. And I can tell you about one, one time I think we fell short was we did a piece, um, simple, simple, simple piece, it was maybe about 1,500, 2,000 words, um, called the number one subway charmer. So there's a, there's a, you know, New York City, we have the subway system, and there's one subway line called the number one line, it's the red line. And we profiled this uh, conductor, driver on the subway, who became notorious uh, for you know passengers would get on the train at, to go to work at eight in the morning, and he would just start talking a mile a minute and, and talking about you know, just making these absurd you know pronouncements over the loudspeaker and, and you know just funny jokes, and people would like either roll with the punches or get really annoyed by it. So we profiled this guy, and one thing that I got a little annoyed about when the story published was you know beautifully written, some really great photos. You know, you, you read that story, and you're like, where the heck is the audio? I want to actually hear yeah. this guy talking. Yeah. And, like, the writer and the editor who worked on that story neglected to, you know, obviously I don't want to blame them. You know, who knows? It might have been, like, maybe they didn't have the technological, you know, ability to do that or whatever. But nowadays, I'm of the belief that take out your iPhone and just get 20 seconds of audio. And maybe you don't want to use it because it's, it, it's horrible. But I oftentimes think that if the story itself is well-crafted, don't worry about a lower-quality little video component because that'll just add some other angle to it. And, yeah. uh, and then that's one thing I wish we had done differently. That's a that really story. good point. That's I mean, we're all, in a sense, we're all multimedia journalists yeah. now. I mean, I started off my career as a radio journalist, but I'm writing plenty of copy for the website now. So we're, you know, and print journalists have to, in a sense, uh, often take uh, videos with their uh, iPhone or mm. Uh, mm. capture audio. Uh, we have got a question, though, and um, let's, let's go to it. Basically, structure-wise, how do you balance, you know, like telling someone's story but also covering the issue that you're trying to discuss, you know what I mean? Uh, like, we mm. recently went on a multimedia journalism t um, tour and just felt overwhelmed with content, like trying to figure out when to use the person's story to, to mm. colour the issue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Like, yeah. how do you find that balance and know when it's too much person and not enough mm. person? Mm. And not trivialise yeah. the issue. It's a great yeah. question. Yeah, good question. My th thoughts on that would be always serve the reader. You know, that, that's, that's your number one thing. You're not serving yourself, you're not serving your... You know, you've, you are serving your editor who's going to commission the piece, <laughs> ultimately, but you are serving that reader. What does the reader need at that given point in time? Literally, after, after your intro, what do they need next? 
After that, what do they need then? You know, and, and just, just think what you need as a reader of that piece. And, and that will always be your, your guiding light, I feel. You know, and, and you have to be absolutely loyal to that reader. So don't hold anything back. Don't, you know, I mean, with, you know, go deep, but, you know, with respect, but, you know, you've got to give it everything to that reader. So, um, big thing, you know, you mentioned Lisa Scott. One thing Lisa Scott taught me on early Q Weekend days, talking about how much of someone else to put in a piece. You know, in, in print, you know, always be aware that a talking head is as boring in print as it is sometimes on television. What people want is your sparkling writing to tell that story as well. So mm. be careful on how many quotes you use. You know, big, nothing more boring than you get those those long form feature stories where it's mm. it's passage of of, of of writer, big chunk of quote, passage yeah. of writer, big chunk of quote. You know those mm. those ones, and it's just yeah. bang bang bang. Because it's the bang, that's bang. the it's the easiest way to write. It's the, the article, easiest way. It? Exactly. Yeah. Storytelling is hard yeah. work, and um and it takes you. And it takes thought and, and emotion and investment from you. Mm. And um, but sorry, yeah, to answer that great, great question because that's so important. You know, so I'm doing a story right now on um, it sort of taps in slightly to PTSD, and um, and uh, and I'm facing that. You know, I've got really great insights from people, but how do I cover that? Massive I, I, find, topic? I find that actually a lot of coverage of domestic violence at the moment yeah. is worryingly too focused on the horrible elements of the personal story at the expense of giving us a sense of what needs to be done and what the broader issues are. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be self-righteous about it because as journalists we've all fallen into that trap of knowing we've got something that's strong emotive content and we know the audience can really relate to it. But I don't know what you think, Kylie, but to me the emotive content is not necessarily the end in itself. It's the means to telling the full story. Uh, and you have to... How do you, how do you as an editor, deal think, with that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's a, it is a trap for, for new players and old players. We're saying this is a, a great story. And you think, yes, it is a great story. But at the hub of everything that I do and every copy that I accept or don't accept is, why do I care about this? Why, why should my reader care about this particular story? Yes, it's a poignant story, but if everybody's got a poignant story, somebody else has got one too. So where is this story going to take this particular issue, whether it's PSTD or whatever, um, PTSD rather, where is this going to take the reader and why does this story matter? You really have to ask yourself that. Why does this story need to be told? And that actually helps you with structuring it because you're not going to put too much in about the person said this, 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 this and this. So what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. The, the best stories and storytellers, I think they, they incorporate what almost amounts to like a magnifying glass in that narrative. And so think about yourself. If you were to, uh, you know, for instance, we did an interesting story a few months ago profiling a a young man from Denmark who left his country to join ISIS. And, and you know, it was, it, this is one of the earlier pieces that really did an in-depth look at why this happened. And with that kind of a story, when I say the magnifying glass, meaning you want to zero in on like all the, the warts and blemishes of this person and, and his or her you know, inner feelings, but every once in a while you want to zoom out again to, to give the, the broader context. And it would be, obviously it would be a very boring piece if all you provided was context, which of course happens a lot in, in the big news, but it also maybe wouldn't be quite as relevant or exciting if all you did was showcase this one person and his or her motivations without contextualizing it from time to time. So I think you know, the, the best uh, stories really incorporate a balance between those two yeah. worlds. Mm. Sometimes you, can f- sometimes you can feel it in your gut as a journalist, I reckon. Sometimes you can feel, oh, 
just think I'm laying it on a bit thick here. And, <laughs> don't you reckon? And just done that many times. Yeah. yeah. Just and put, also, just be patient with yourself. Like I'm sure you're the same. Tr- I've, I look back on my early work. I think, oh, how embarrassing. You know, like, you think you're doing a really great job and then you read it and you get better with every story you do. So get, cut yourself some slack and and be open to feedback. If you do get some someone who's going to give you some feedback rather than just, no, I don't like that piece, which sometimes I have to say because I don't have time. But if you can get some feedback, you take it on board and you may not agree with it and another editor might give you different feedback. But be open to constructive criticism because it, that's how you learn. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I've got another question here and then we'll take the woman in the front afterwards. Hi, um, my name is Hamish Sewell and I just wanted to explore an issue which Trent, you were talking about in terms of myth, the, the mythological sort of underpinnings of some of these stories. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Shakespeare, you mentioned some of the great writers, but I guess I want to put it to you that, that the myth-making that's often in stories is not necessarily about those old classics. The myths might be about our connection to place, our connection to each other, and what it is that binds us, that our, our sort of common story. And I've been working um, for the last couple of years in regional Australia, and these are places that are losing their stories very quickly. Oh, wow. They're places yeah. that are really on the brink of, if, um, you know, their, their validity as towns are kind of under question. And uh, I guess I wanted to sort of just ask you guys, can you speak to that idea of the, the role of myth-making in, in sort of the survival of kind of who we are as people in a community? Man, I just got chills you, the way you asked that question. Yeah. But, no, um, because I totally agree. And, and uh, you know, I was, I was <laughs> thinking about... You, you're probably writing about it, but a bloke contacted me from Charleville saying that exact same thing. He said, because of this horrendous drought, you know, what, two-thirds of Queensland's in drought, um, and, and he's saying all of these things are being lost from our town, all, all, of these, all of these beautiful things that make the town, not just shops, but, you know, connectors, um, you know, that connect the people are being lost. And, yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to write in, in uni- you know, I hate this sort of sound like a bloody, you know, writing f- philosophy major, but it's like, you know, universal themes, you know, like... Every, your, your story should be filled with universal themes, you know, fish out of water, like these, are these you know, just classic universal themes, fish out of water, um, betrayal, um, you know, love conquers evil, all those things. I know that sounds cheesy and cliched, but like at the heart, if these themes are, are there to be found in all your stories and they're there in the outback and, and possibly being lost. And, uh, and, you know, I did this story about a girl from Charleville, um, you know, and she was being um, sent away to boarding school. And... Uh, and, and basically I was there just at the very moment where the parents are saying goodbye and seeing, farewelling her. And, and that, that kind of spoke not just of, you know, what, what people in the outback are going through, but it spoke much more about, um, um, you know, growing up and, and, mm. and a parent saying farewell. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just spoke much... It also spoke about the drought and the fact that they needed to... Because the town was falling apart, so there wasn't any school out that way anymore, so they had to do that. But it spoke of other bigger universal themes that connected that family. Sorry if I'm rambling, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. I mean, this is a universal story, isn't it? The death of the small town and, uh, and what goes when a small town goes. It's not just a, a dot on a map, but it's just a whole... Heritage, a whole history mm-hmm. of family connections. That, you know, you're and saying, again, you can you know, broaden that out to the loss of tradition and the yeah. loss of the way we do things and, you know, sewing things by hand and fixing things instead of throwing them out and getting a new, cheaper mm-hmm. model from China for half the price. Mm. You know, so all those themes can have bigger themes. 
My, my only qualification would be, and I think it's a really good point, uh, playing with the myth, but once again, you don't want to overstep and, sentiment, and overly sentimentalise. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with the decline of our rural towns, it is, I think we can all agree, a tragedy. But there are broader factors at play that people need to understand that are contributing to it. We don't need to agree, but I think you need to inform the, the reader or the listener uh, about what... I mean, if it's a natural disaster, if it's a drought, then that's just an unmitigated catastrophe. But if it's, you know, the forces of free trade and globalisation, whether we agree with those or not, they need to be brought to bear on the story so people can get a fuller understanding of why these things are happening, I think. Um, and we have a woman in the middle... Thank you. I work as a, a, a freelance writer in rural and remote Australia and see lots of stories, particularly at the moment with the current drought on. And often I'll, I'll come across a photograph or a story that I think it's really big, but it's the weight of it, I don't know what to do with it. Who do I send it to? Is it one outlet? Mm. Do I, if there's, if there's a news story cracking mm. and you see it appear in every newspaper in Australia, I'm not sure what that process is to get it. Uh, is it just a one and then it snowballs from there? Or how, as a freelancer and a business person, how do I sell that mm. um, w without giving it away? So often people, they just expect me to give it to them. Um, without paying for so, it. Without paying for it. Yeah. But that doesn't happen a lot, but it has happened. Mm. And, it, and if it's something that you want to go widespread, how do you choose where to send it to? Do, do you mm. understand? Which also dovetails into the question of who's got any money in the media anymore to pay yeah. for this sort of stuff, really. Um, uh, it's, a, it's the person with the great photograph who ends up having to virtually give it away because no one's got the money to pay for that photograph. And again, it's contacts. You need to make contact with somebody who can champion your work, who knows your work, who could recommend you to someone else. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's time and place. You know, there's not a formula that I could say to you, this is what you should do, because it really depends. Yes, and also being being sensitive. This is what, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but what PR people tend to do, what dr drives me nuts, is they'll pitch something to me, but they've also pitched yeah. to other people within my, you know, my office, and I hear someone else talking about it. Mm. It's like, well, mm. where, do you, where do you want the story placed? Yeah. What, what do you want to do with the story? And... But be specific and be open and say, I've already spoken to so-and-so and so-and-so, mm -hmm. you know, um, because you're only going to shoot yourself in the foot otherwise. But, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I just think you, you need to make those contacts. Yeah, and I think you summed it up well by saying that you're a business person. And I think, you know, imagine if you were out there selling steak knives, you know, you'd want me as the, as the potential buyer to know that that steak knife is perfect for me because of X, Y, and Z. And you, I want to know that you're... You care about me, obviously. You know, it's a steak knife is a bad example because, like, that's very unauthentic. I think, but you know, you want to 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 sell it. You know, you want to sell it to this editor and and make him or her know that you know their publication. The worst is when we get pitched for something that like isn't even remotely something we would ever do a story on. Um, so you want you want the writer, to, the editor, to feel special. And then I think you can also be a little bit creative. You know, let's say you're, you have a great story, but no one wants to pay for it. One thing I talked about this morning in my talk about audience building is. Negotiate, you know, play hardball and say, okay, you know what, fine, ABC, I'll give you the story for free, but 
I'm really trying to grow my, my Facebook following right now. Yes. So I'll give you the story if you'll do three, three Facebook posts linking to my Facebook page with some of my previous work because I want to build my own following. Now, granted, that's not ideal, I don't think. You want to get paid as well. But, um, but I think you, know, you might be surprised. And, and one thing we talked about a moment ago is about universal stories. Um, you know, one thing that's really uh, kind of been exciting for me running a media company out of New York City is that when we first launched, we were only doing stories out of New York. But we got bombarded with interest from people around the world responding to what we were doing and saying, hey, I love the story you did about the tugboat captain who's been working in New York Harbor for 70 years. I have a story about someone who's doing something similar in Sydney Harbor. Like, do you want it? And so I think the cool thing is that you know, the obvious choice is for a story about drought in Australia would, of course, be Australian media outlets. But there might be, send it to me. You know, send it to other journalists around the world, other publications, because they might see something in that story that you don't necessarily see immediately. And it might not be ready to publish right away. We might work with you to kind of make it appeal to our audience. But I think if, if the story is there, I think uh, you know, don't underestimate the, the potential reach that story can have. Yeah, working relationships is really important. I mean, journalism is a relationship profession. I mean, we do it with our sources, but uh, perhaps we need to apply that same canny sense of relationships to the people who may buy and place mm. our stories. I mean, often we're very good at that, that sensitive dealing with uh, talent and with sources, but we're not so good when it's dealing yeah, and with hopeless a at marketing ourselves, you know? Like, I think journos are really bad at, you know, because we're, I, I hope, you know, pretty humble kind of people most often, and, and I think that requires a bit of just, like, oh, yeah. put yourself out there and do that. Yeah. You struck me as a very humble, sweet woman who, uh, <laughs> you know, who, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily be banging on doors and going, hey, you've got to write this story. Yeah. And, you know, the Australian uh, recently ran, you know, this is just an example. I sit near a bloke who does a lot of the jihad jihadi stories for the Australian. He broke a story because um, a University of Western Australia student emailed him and said, look, I'm, I know a guy, and it turned out to be Reese Harding, that, that um, you know, young, extremely heroic guy who went over to, um, you know, fight with the Kurds and, and tragically died. But he knew that guy and he gave Mark the tip off. And this, you know, young guy, young journo student, he just had the chutzpah to go, mate, give me a byline and, um, and the story's yours. Mm. And that was his first published story, had his byline. Yeah. The Australian National Newspaper, cracking, breaking news yeah. yarn. You know, it's that sort, of, that sort of thing. And you might want to try that too, develop and develop, um, absolutely, as, as Noel was saying, develop those, those connections, but even as writing partnerships. Mm -hmm. You know, every journal is looking for that great breaking news yarn, and if you've got it, you can hijack him and go, well, oh, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, let's, let's, let's negotiate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think that's, yeah. I think I can't stress enough, yeah, the importance of, um, of being confident. You know, if you're, if you're confident <laughs> enough to knock on someone's door and ask them how it feels to have their son just having been killed, you know, you can, you can reach out to media outlets and say, hey, you should publish my story. You know, that's, we, as journalists, we're trained to, to step outside our comfort zone, but yet for whatever reason, you know, oftentimes we don't have the confidence to value our work. So I think that's, that's very important, and I would encourage you to, to do that. One of my favorite stories, actually, is one of my good friends and one of our um, early contributors to Narratively didn't have an ounce of experience in journalism, but yet she had the chutzpah, to use a term that, that Trent said, to contact out of the blue an editor at the New York Times on the Metro desk in New York four or five years ago, and he saw something in her, her email and invited her in. Next thing you know, she's writing stories for the New York Times. Um, well, that's obviously an extreme scenario, but, um, but you know, she, she made it happen, and I think uh, there's no reason why you guys can't try something similar. Oh, Risa, I, I, like, I did this fanboy thing to um, this great writer I love named Scott Rabe, who writes for Esquire, and he wrote this amazing piece on Sean Penn. You know, and it's just never been a smaller world, you know, and, and I just sort of, I don't know, found his email somewhere, emailed Scott Rabe and said, hey, 
I'm from Brisbane, Australia. Um, I just want to, you know, compliment you on that amazing Sean Penn story. And he gets back and writes this, like, three-paragraph response. And I don't know, I just thought, you know, yeah, it is so small. And, you know, and most people are really cool and sort of appreciate a well-worded email, you know, and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll get back to you. Yeah. When in doubt, just dream about Benedict Cumberbatch for uh, inspiration. Break <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, we've been talking and meant to be talking about long-form journalism, and I don't know whether the point's been made yet, but long-form journalism in print, in radio, in TV is really hard. You know, it is, it goes without saying, very hard to hold a reader for 3,000, 5,000 words in an article. You know, that is at the top of your craft, being able to do that. It's the same with radio and television documentary making. So, um, you know, I, I think that should inform the types of stories that you pitch. Uh, you know, you can tell a great story, um, a narrative in three or 5,000 words, but gee, it's, it's, a, it's a tough ask, isn't it? And so I think I'd bear, I'd bear that in mind as well. I have, people come, have had people come to me at the ABC pitching ideas for one hour programs off the back of not a great deal of experience and you know occasionally they can pull it off but mm. it's not a high percentage option I don't think um, putting that pitch I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt because it seems like such a wonderful conversation but I hope you all got to ask some questions please thank our fantastic panel what a great chat Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.